0: Today, we're going to continue through our series um, called Thriving in Babylon, and today is actually going to be a hinge day, okay? And so... We've gone through this series. Uh, This is actually the seventh part of that series, and looking at the life of Daniel specifically, also um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, we've been looking at their lives and how they lived when they were in captivity in Babylon, and how God used them to influence the pagan culture that they were called into. And uh, we're looking at how we can use those examples to live in our culture today and make sure the, that we are people of influence. And so, um, remember, the loudest voice isn't the most influence. I mean, we live in a world today that if we we, we try for the shock value, you know, we try to put something on, on Facebook that's even going to just, you know, just get everybody's attention and, you know, that... that That doesn't necessarily mean influence, okay? And, uh, you know, we saw it just this last week in South Dakota, and I'm not going to tell you what I think about the the meth thing, but here's what I do think. I think we honor our leaders even if we disagree with their methods. Always, okay? We never slip into mocking, and uh, we especially don't mock something as serious as addiction in anybody's life. So I will say that part. Um, But they... Purposely, Right from the mouth of our governor chose something that would be kind of a shock value because we are so accustomed in our culture that we miss the messages that are just plain messages. We've got to try to shock people and um, that's not necessarily how the kingdom of God operates. And so as we've looked at how to know God, how to know God more, how to know our identity, who we are in Christ, knowing how to pray from Daniel chapter 9, knowing God's agenda from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that his agenda is to reconcile people to himself. His agenda is not to have a, a people who behave themselves or a nation where all of the laws of that nation are just like what his word says. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for a people to be brought back into relationship with him, and then their job, their assignment that we talked about last week, is to bring reconciliation. So we're reconciled to reconcile. Today, we're going to start talking about knowing how to live. We're going to talk about knowing how to live. And we're going to start putting into practice some of the stuff that we've talked about. And I call it a hinge day because next week is actually the beginning of Advent season. And for those of you that maybe grew up in church, you kind of are familiar with Advent. Those of you that didn't, maybe aren't familiar. But Advent is the season of year when we remember Christ's first coming. The word Advent just means coming. When he came to the earth, because the people of Israel had anticipated for years, thousands of years, a Messiah to come. Unfortunately, when he came, they missed him. And so, because he didn't come the way they expected. And so, that coming, we we celebrate it, we remember it, but we also look forward to his second coming. Because there's actually more prophecy concerning his second coming than his first coming. So, if his first coming happened with less prophecy... How many of you believe his second coming is going to happen? And so we we look forward to that. And there are four weeks of Advent, and there are four themes that go with that. They are hope and peace and joy and love, depending on the the tradition that you grew up in. And so next week, we're going to start with knowing how to live with hope. Then we're going to talk about knowing how to live with peace. And we're going to break from it a little bit. Instead of talking about joy, we're going to talk about knowing how to live with humility And then we're going to talk about knowing how to live with love. And we're going to end the year with knowing how to live with wisdom. And so we're going to tie this Daniel series into our Advent series. And then we're going to start um, the year together. Now, in the book, The Daniel Dilemma, if you've been reading it, chapter 15 is called, How Then Shall We Live? And that's where he kind of puts handles on All of the stuff that we've talked about, and that's really the chapter we're going to focus on. Um, Last week, and then again this week, if you have a mailbox, I put this in your mailbox. There are extra copies available in the Welcome Center if you don't have a mailbox here, or if you didn't get that, or um, if you want an extra copy, there are some out there in the lobby for you, and I'm going to give you all of the information that is on that sheet, and we're going to kind of walk through it. And today is really going to be a teachy type of day because I want to set up where we're going for the next couple of weeks. And so when we start talking about the kingdom of God, you, we have to understand the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom is what Jesus preached. Okay? When Jesus went anywhere, he preached the message of the kingdom. Read through the Gospels and look at it. He preached the Gospel of the Kingdom. The disciples, when they first started preaching, preached the Gospel of the Kingdom. And we don't hear much about the Gospel of the Kingdom today. We preach the Gospel, but the Gospel of the Kingdom is a very important phrase, not just for semantics' sake, okay? It's important because the Kingdom of God is not like the Kingdom of the World, And the scripture lays that foundation. Jesus, when he stood before Pilate, tells him, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight for my freedom. They would fight to release me, but I'm about to do something that's actually going to be far superior to the kingdom of the world, and I'm gonna disarm spiritual powers and authorities through my humbling of myself through death on the cross. Okay, that's how the kingdom happens. It's told to us in Colossians chapters 1 and 2. Jesus made a spectacle of the powers of the air that are at work by, crucify, by letting them crucify him on the cross. And now we sometimes think the way that we operate in the kingdom is to be forceful. we got to be forceful. we got to be loud. we got to just take control. we got to get out the vote. we got to get people to agree with us. And Jesus says, no, 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 first you've got to humble yourself, and so you break the spiritual forces that are at work if you have any hope of having an impact in the physical kingdom. And so that's what the scripture teaches us in places like Philippians chapter 3. I've often told you before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, Paul says, there are many whose conduct shows they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, What he's saying is, there are people who say all the right words. I love Jesus. I accept the cross. They're saying the right stuff, but their conduct shows they are not living a dead life. Remember from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when we come into relationship with God, we no longer live for ourselves. We've crucified ourselves. Now we live for him. But Paul says there are those, they're claiming that, but their conduct is not showing that. They're headed for destruction. They're really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite, their feelings. Whatever feels good, I just do it. You know, I I don't really feel the presence of the Lord. I don't care if you don't feel the presence of the Lord. If you're doing what the scripture says, then you're, the presence of the Lord is there because where his word is, there he is. So your feelings don't matter and your feelings can be thrown off by all kinds of stuff. Our feelings can be thrown off by our own sinful desires that haven't been worked out yet. Our feelings can be thrown off by, by things that are, are maybe causing tension in our lives. Our feelings can even be thrown off by how we physically feel, a cold or a sickness or something we ate. But their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. See, he's going to come back as our Savior. He's already our Lord, or should be, unless we're not living for him, unless we're living more for our life here on earth. Okay? Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians church says it this way, be strong in the Lord, in his mighty power, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. And yet every day believers try to take up arms against those flesh and blood enemies wondering why the situation isn't working out for them. We are fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world and evil spirits in heavenly places. And you say, well, wait, wait, didn't you just say Jesus triumphed over them? Yeah. But he needs an enforcer because they don't play fair. And they try to take back ground. And they take back ground when we agree with them. When we start agreeing with them in our conduct, when we start agreeing with them in our thought processes, then we actually empower them or give them right or access to our lives. And I don't care if it's the the sin of homosexuality or just the, the little tiny baby sin of slander. Anytime we open our mouths and slander someone, what we have done is given access. And if we don't repent, say, God, that was wrong. I should not have done that. I should not have said that. I break that off of my life. Wow, see that takes intentional living. You can't just go through life hoping you're going to live in the kingdom of heaven. It's not going to happen. You we have to be intentional about how we're living our lives here on the earth or we're going to live for our own desires. And we're going to dress up our desires in spiritual religious wording and make them sound good, but they're not going to be truth. Cuz we're still living for ourselves and not for him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. That has to be done in the spiritual realm first. And why? Because in chapter 4, he says, Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. There are spiritual forces that are at work blinding people. Romans chapter 3 says, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Galatians chapter 3, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. And so when we use the, the truth of God's word to try to get people to change their behavior before reconciling them to God, we're misusing the law. We're misusing the word of God. Because there's no hope of change apart from the power of God at work in our life when we kneel at the cross. The point of the scripture, the point of the law, the point of the word of God is to show us how hopeless it is to try to do it in our own strength so that we can lead people to be reconciled to God so there's hope for change. That's the truth. But living in this place of full grace and full truth is hard and it's messy. Because we just want, okay, just boil it down for me, Pastor. Come on. J- don't make me try to figure this out. Just you know, tell me what's right or wrong. It, I can't. Yeah, I can, I can start telling you, okay, the Scripture says this is wrong. The Scripture says this is wrong. But I don't want you to rely on me. I don't want you to have to come to me and say, hey, is this right or wrong? I want you to read the book. I want you to know the voice of the Spirit, and I want him to show you what's right or wrong. There are some pastors, teachers today, that they take all of their time to tell people about, oh, this false teacher and that false teacher and this false teaching and that false teaching. I'm not here to talk about the false. I'm here to talk about the true. Because once you know the true and once you know the genuine, yeah, maybe it's not going to work itself out in your life as quickly as your neighbor thinks it should. Or as, as quickly as your parents think it should. Or as quickly as other people in the body of Christ think it should. But you keep seeking him. Keep being genuine, authentic. And when he says, hey, get this out of your life, don't make excuses for it. Start getting it out of your life. If that means finding accountability, find accountability. But we, we search for things like, what do I say to my atheist coworker? What do I say to my Buddhist neighbor? I don't know if some of you know this, but you probably have more Buddhist neighbors than you realize. Okay? But it's not about this list. I mean, Pastor, hey, what do I say to my homosexual nephew? Okay, because we're, we're going to have, you know, we're, we're moving into this time when, you know, Thanksgiving, and I'm going to be around my family, and could you just give me like a resource of what I say to them? No. I can't. Because the gospel is not meant to be this cookie cutter for every individual. I mean, if you look at the way Jesus interacted with people, it wasn't the same every time. Because he he relied on the spirit to show him what needed to be done in that moment, what needed to be said in that moment. And we want these cookie cutter patterns and we think we can just post something on Facebook and the whole world is going to be changed. Ain't going to happen. There needs to be real tangible relationships with one Another. There's not a one-size-fits-all to being a Daniel in our culture. I will tell you this. It starts with us living out these things that we've already talked about. It's not about just, you know, living. It's not about following the method. You know, you just pray for people and you use the prayer from Ephesians 1 and 3 and it just happens. I mean, God can do that. But what's most important is are you connected to him? Do you understand what I'm talking about? Like if you plug something into a wall socket, but there's no power connected to it, ain't anything going to happen. There has to be power connected to the socket. You and I are like sockets and we're trying to plug people in and, you know, we're, we're praying over them and we're just using all the right words and languages and train me, give me a list, give me a summary. But if, if we're not connected to him, nothing's going to flow through. And if you are connected to him, the right verbiage sometimes doesn't matter. He works in spite of our weakness. And he just manages to make it happen. So it begins and ends with prayer. It begins and ends with our connection to him and our dependency to him. So yellow sheet. So what Chris Hodges has done is he's given us five ways to begin to pray for people. And then five ways to begin to engage with people. And we're going to cover them pretty quick because they're written down there for you. And so I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on them. But the first one, begin to pray that the Father would draw people to Jesus. Begin to pray every single day, every morning, for your coworkers, for your neighbors, for just people in general. You know, pray that God would bring them. In fact, laminate this paper and put it in your shower and every single morning, just begin to pray. That's the first step. Draw people to Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws them. So you can learn the Romans road. You can learn everything, and you can preach it to every person you meet. But if the Father's not at work drawing them, they're not coming. We pray like it depends on God, and we work like it depends upon us. Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. Listen to me. Jesus' teachings are not the way. Jesus' teachings are not the truth. Jesus' teachings are not the life. Yes, they're true. Yes, they're the way. Yes, they're the life. It's him. We've got to connect people to him, not just to his teachings. They've got to come to him. So he gives us a prayer. You don't know what to pray? Here, this is why I say laminate, put it in your shower. Father, I pray for, put in their name. Don't just say the people. I mean, you can do the people, but who are your coworkers? Who are you targeting? Who's that neighbor? Because we pray these general prayers. We don't even know when God answers them. But you start putting people in that blank. Pray for this person. When God starts answering that prayer, you're going to be like, God, you answered that prayer. You're drawing them to you. They don't even have to be people you engage on a regular basis. They can be people that you love that live far away. But someone's going to come across their path because God is after them. I know he's after them. He's after everyone. Pray that you would draw people around me, that you would supernaturally draw their hearts to you. Send your Holy Spirit to them. Give them the desire to give their lives to you. Help them to recognize their longing for more as a spiritual and as a thirst only you can quench. Open their ears to hear your voice. That's where it starts. The second thing that we're going to pray is we're going to bind the spirit that blinds their minds. We already read that from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where the, the, the enemy actually blinds people's minds. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with people or if you've ever watched others have a conversation. And someone is, it's like, it's like they're denying reality. It's like, how do they not see that? And we sometimes get frustrated and we're like, you're an idiot, you're stupid. How do you not? Can I tell you something? There really are spiritual forces at work blinding people. And if you are not regularly playing, praying for that spirit to be bound so they can see the truth, stop getting frustrated that they're not seeing it. By and large, we don't rely on prayer. We don't start our day with, God, open the minds of every person I'm going to encounter today so they can hear it. I bind that spirit that keeps them from receiving and understanding. This, this idea of binding something literally means to just tie up, to throw out, to cast out. To It comes from Matthew chapter 16. A few weeks ago, we looked at Matthew chapter 16, maybe last week, where Peter said, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Remember that one? And right after that, he says, you can Bind things that need to be bound that are already bound in heaven. So these spirits are already bound. You can bind them because Jesus triumphed over them. See, so you can't just bind whatever you want to bind, but you can bind any spiritual force because they're already beaten. So, you, I mean, you, I'm binding my nosy neighbor. I'm binding my, you know, crabby coworker. I'm, you can't do that, okay, because it's not in the Scripture, But you can bind, you can remove what's hindering because it's already been triumphed over by the cross. In a little bit, we're going to talk about the other side of that. Jesus also says you can release or loose some other things, and we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. So whatever it is that is blocking people from seeing clearly, and just because people have come to know Christ doesn't mean every spirit has stopped blinding them. There are people that go to church every single week of their lives, And they still have areas where the enemy is blinding them. I have areas where the enemy is blinding me. And I would say every single person in this room has areas where the enemy is blinding you. That's why we need each other in the body of Christ. That's why we work together. That's why we pray, help us see. It's like when you read a scripture, all of a sudden the light comes on and you're like, wow, how did I never see that before? Blind. It's all right. We've all been blind, but we want to pray this for ourselves too. God, show me any area where something is blocking me. Then he gives us a prayer. Father, bind the evil spirits that are blinding the minds of fill in the blank. Or blinding my mind. The people around me, in the name of Jesus, I pray that they would be able to see clearly, to recognize who you are, and to give their hearts to you. Remove all hindrance the enemy would use to distract them from your truth. Open their eyes, Lord, that they may see you. Let me just tell you this. The moment you start committing to do this, I'm going to commit to pray for people. I'm going to put this up in my shower. You're going to oversleep every day. That's what's just going to happen. Or there's going to be a billion things on your mind. The car is going to break down. How am I going to get, I don't have time to get the car fixed. I don't have money to get the car fixed. And there's going to be distractions. This is what happens. The moment you start saying, I'm going to start engaging people. I'm going to find a way to just engage them in conversation and see what the Spirit does. See what the Spirit says. You're going to be busy. You're not going to have time for this. This is going to happen. You're not going to feel like it. You're going to get a cold and you're going to be like, I just can't do it today. Those are the days to do it. You say, God, I don't feel like doing this today, but Holy Spirit, you got to give me the strength, the wisdom, the power to do it. I want it to come from you. It's not going to come from you. And if it comes from you, it's all wrong. It's got to come from him. So begin to pray these things and begin to act them out. we got to keep moving. lot to go through. Then we loose the spirit of adoption. This is from Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. People need a personal encounter with the living God. This is what makes Christianity different from all other religions of the world. You don't have to earn your place with God. You get to come right into his presence because of what Christ did the moment you accept him. And you get to encounter him because of nothing you've done other than accept him. No other religion in the world is like that. You've got to earn it. You've got to do the right thing. You've got to pay penance. You've got to do all these things. Christianity says, no, you've got to come into him. I don't earn my way in. There are people that need to have encounters with God, and I would pray that you would, that you would begin to pray for people to have personal encounters with God. Father, I pray that people will understand how much you love them. Loose the spirit of adoption for people around me so they come into a meaningful relationship with you. Stir in their hearts a longing to come home, to hear your voice, to see you welcoming them with open arms. Let them know that you are always running to meet them and hold them close. I want to read you a story. It's a long story and I hope I have time for it. But if I have to cut something later, I think it's worth it. It's a story that comes from a book called The War of Loves. And it's the story about a young man who grew up in a non-Christian home and he, uh, has, he has homosexual tendencies. So he's been in homosexual relationships and he hates Christians because Christians are mean to him and they, they say things and do things. And uh, he has a friend, and this is a story about their encounter, and I'm going to take my glasses off or I won't be able to read it. He says, I was worn out from a political conference and late nights spent editing the university student magazine. <clears throat> Instead of the more raucous options available for my night, I decided to go to a small pub to celebrate a writer friend's birthday. It was late March. As I got out of the cab, the streets were filled with the buzz of Sydney. He's in Australia. Sydney's nightlife. A rainbow flag flew above a building just doors down. I was only a street over from Oxford Street, Sydney's famous gay quarter, which held fond memories of Mardi Gras parades, night outs, and coffee dates with friends. I walked up the pub stairs, and I scanned the room. Not many people I knew had arrived yet, but I did spot a friend of a friend holding a drink and sitting alone. Madeline was a finalist in one of the largest short film competitions in the world. A huge accomplishment for a young creative. Everyone was talking about her in my screenwriting class, and I wanted to interview her for the student magazine. It would easily make the best feature article. Unlike a lot of my peers whose creative projects centered on them, Madeline was using her gifts to raise awareness for those often misunderstood or forgotten, people with disabilities. Having a disabled uncle, I found her work inspiring. As I approached her, her brown eyes warmed in recognition, and we said hello. Her hair was cut short. She wore red lipstick and a black dress. Right away, I launched into the question I wanted to ask. How did you become a finalist? You just graduated. That depends, she said. Do you want the real answer or the interview answer? I laughed, unprepared for what would follow. The real answer, of course. God led me to make the film. Madeline must have seen the shock on my face. I remembered the conversation with my aunt and uncle over Christmas lunch. Please don't mention Jesus, I thought. I couldn't see how Christianity had anything to do with her work. How could a faith that oppressed me and so many others motivate her to do such good? So which God, I asked with a hint of sarcasm. Are we talking like the Vinshu God here? Jesus, she said. A thousand objections flooded me as I thought of this God who stood in the way of community's progress in society. And yet, Madeline wasn't like the other moralizing, intolerant, anti-intellectual, homophobic, anti-feminist Christians I'd met. (laughs) That's quite a story. She explained that she too struggled with Christian stereotypes and the small-mindedness found in parts of the Christian community. The key word in John 3.16, she said, was whoever. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I realized Madeline didn't see my homosexuality as a hindrance to knowing God. She clearly wanted my community to find the same love she had discovered. Madeline paused. I knew she had seen my reaction to her faith wasn't positive. Only my admiration for her work prevented what would have otherwise been a very rude response. "'Do you think there's a God?' she asked. Not a hint of ulterior motive or trying to convert me, just an open question. "'Well, I'm basically an atheist. I believe there's a something, I guess. I'm a spiritual person, and I think you have to be blind to believe there's absolutely nothing behind life,' I said, looking down at my drink. "'I just don't like organized religion.' I'm gay, so I know this Christian God isn't an option for me. I've never understood how, if he existed, he'd give me these desires and then condemn me. I expected her to quibble or awkwardly change the subject like many of my Christian friends, but Madeline didn't hesitate. David, have you ever experienced the love of God? What do you mean? No. My only impression of him was that he was angry and a distant deity, God loves everyone right where they are, Madeline said. I wanted to recoil at her words, yet something drew me deeper. Suddenly, her eyes widened. David, I can feel God's presence so strongly right now. She paused. He loves you so incredibly much. I'd never usually ask this, but can I pray for you? Instantly, I had an internal war over how to respond. Should I say yes or should I say no? A voice in my mind whispered, You're a good agnostic. You have to be open to prayer because you don't know if there's a God. Any other response is intellectually dishonest and closed-minded. Another thought, this one louder, came right on its heels. Get away from this crazy fundamentalist. She's a brainwash like those Christians that you read about in the newspaper. The gentler voice won. Yes, you can pray for me, I finally said. But I don't think anything is going to happen. As Madeline laid her hands on me and prayed, the bustle of the pub faded away. I entered into a stillness, a peace. Soon, I felt a soft tingling on the crown of my head that slowly intensified as if someone was pouring oil over me. The warm sensation ran down my entire body like a current of water. It was unlike anything I'd ever felt before. In a moment, in that experience... So totally from outside me, so totally unasked for, everything turned upside down in my mind. All of my searching in religion and relationships and atheism, none of it compared with this love that was coursing through me like electricity. For the first time, I knew God was real, and I knew that he loved me. This changes everything, I realized. I don't have time to read the rest of his experience in that pub, but I wanted to read to you what happened when he got home. He walks into his house. He's talking to his mother. He says, Mom, tonight, I, I, think, I think I've become a Christian, I said sheepishly. For a minute, she stared at me awestruck. The moment my news sunk in, she jumped up and hugged me. My mother's reactions always had a hint of drama about them because she's been an opera singer in her younger years. David, I prayed that if he was truly the God of the impossible, God would save you because you were so impossible to save. Now I know he can do anything, she said, wiping away her tears. She told me Aunt Helen had been praying for 11 years that I would come to know Jesus. She also told me about Uncle Brendan's prophecy after Christmas lunch. I quickly did the math and realized that that day was exactly three months earlier. My salvation had been foretold more than once, it seemed. I began to see I was the object of a benevolent, divine conspiracy to reveal the love of God to me. I wish every story ended that way, but some of them do. You say, well, what if I pray for someone and they don't have an encounter like that? The encounter's not up to you. The prayer is. And by the way, don't expect it to happen just because you say the right words. You got to be connected to the conduit. If you're not going to live connected to him, if you're not going to live for him and not for yourself, if you're not going to say, Father, I want to be ready at a moment's notice. I don't want to notice what everyone else noticed. I want to pray for people to encounter the love of God. If people genuinely come into an encounter with God's love, they will be transformed by it. We're not talking about they don't need to clean up their lives. He will clean up their lives. He will. Let, him in, let them encounter his love. The next one. Pray that believers will enter into positive relationships with the lost and pray that we will see the opportunities across our paths. Jesus said the harvest is great and the workers are few. I don't know what the percentage would be of how many of us actually go through the day looking to harvest. My guess is all of us need to look more. And so as you pray this, make sure we pray for ourselves. God, I don't want other people to just see him. I want to see him. Help me to deal with the busyness of my day, the frustrations of my day. I just want to plant seeds everywhere I go. Some people are going to say yes. Some people are going to say no. Trust the word. Plant the seed. Let it grow. Don't be discouraged if someone starts the race and then they fall away. The scripture says that some people are going to be excited about it and later they're going to fall away. Some people are going to say no at first and then later on they're going to accept it. Some are going to accept it and then later on they're going to turn away from it. Just plant the seed. And then he gives us the prayer that we can pray. Father, I pray for the lost around me to meet believers who will influence them in a positive way. Lord, let my life shine in such a way that people will want to know the God I serve. Allow others to see my genuine love and concern for them in all that I say and do. Let me be your hands and feet to serve them and let them know just how much you love them. By the way, do you know where the scripture says that we should shine like stars in the universe? or where we will shine like stars in the universe, where we do everything without grumbling and complaining. It's in Philippians chapter 2, I believe it's verse 14. Do everything without grumbling and complaining so that you shine like stars in the universe. Just think of that the next time you're about to grumble or complain about something at work or anywhere else. There you go. So release, the last one, release the spirit of wisdom and revelation on people that they would know God better. And that's from the prayer from Ephesians 1 that we just read earlier today, so I'm not going to take the time to read it. But we want people to come to know wisdom and revelation. We want them to know it. Just this last Friday, I was in the the chapel at James Valley, and, uh, you know, he talked about the difference of having truth and really knowing truth. And the illustration that he gave is, what if you walked around all of your life with this rock, and you just loved it, it was pretty, and you're like, ah, man, I really love that rock. And you kept it with you, and you just, everywhere you went, that was that rock. And when you died, what they realized was, you were actually carrying around the world's largest uncut diamond. The whole time you carried it around, that was still the truth. You just didn't know it. And there are far too many people walking around with truth, they just don't know it. They need to come to the wisdom and revelation of it. So then on the other side of that page, and I know it's 1124 and we're going to move quick. This is how we engage our culture. And I want to say again, there's not a script. There's not an easy answer. I know he gives us things that we could say to help people. And I'm not going to, um, all of those are listed on the sheet. The part that's in italics on this side is the part, here's what you could say in a conversation or something like it. And I'm going to just hit the bullet points as we go through this. And so you're going to have to, to read through those other things uh, on your own. But here's the thing. Keep your standards high and your grace deep. Keep your standards high and your grace deep. Meaning, you know, the reality is the world is going to think that God's way is foolish. The scripture says it right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The, the ways of God are foolish to people. It, can I just say it's foolish to us sometimes too. I mean, I say it all the time to believers that are trying to convince someone through arguments or through, you know, these worldly ways. And I say, you know, God wants us to do, well, you're too naive. That's too pie in the sky. You know, that's just, that. yeah, it's foolish, I know. But the ways of God are always foolish. the human mind, even the human mind that has the Holy Spirit living inside, because sometimes we don't let him come over to our minds. Stick to God's way, stick to God's word. Sin is sin, period. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus says, I say to you, anyone who looks at someone with lust has already committed adultery with them in their heart. See, Jesus takes the standard, and he doesn't lower it. He actually raises it, and he makes everyone an adulterer. So stop focusing on the sins that you can see in other people and just focus on the sin problem that every one of us has. I love Ray Comfort when he's asked, "How how do you share the gospel with a homosexual? He says, the same way I share it with everybody else. It's not one sin that's a problem more than others. It's the sin problem. And if I can get them to be reconciled to God and to deal with the sin problem, God will deal with their specific individual sins. So there, there you go. So the standard gets higher, and we want to make sure that we live in that tension of full grace and full truth. The next one, accept people without approving of their behavior. In John chapter 8, 10, and 11, Jesus has this encounter with a woman that's caught in adultery, and Jesus gets all of the accusers that are going to stone her to walk away, Um, he masterfully accepts this woman and does not condone her behavior. He clearly tells her, go and sin no more. You don't have to be angry and hate people that disregard the message of Christ. Far too many of us in the church get offended for God. When people thumb their nose at him or they're, you know, they're, they're living in immoral ways and, I mean, we, we literally get just disgusted by them. I'm going to tell you this. If your face says disgust when someone talks to you about their sin, you're not going to reach them. You're not going to reach them. The most heinous of behavior that I could think of as I was preparing for this is a Pedophile. And there are times that I watch on social media as pedophiles are arrested and they're convicted and and I watch the stuff that's posted and we need to castrate the scum, we need to do this, these losers, they they don't even deserve to live. No matter the action, it's still a soul. It's still a soul. And you know, there's really no way on social media to explain that to people. Um, I've tried in my youth, but I realized that then, you know, it just gets ugly um, toward me because, you know, I, I'm not protecting children. Let me say this. We don't have to understand what someone else is doing or behaving. And we should never condone it or excuse it. But we have to value the soul of the perpetrator. And the reason I use the extreme illustration of a pedophile is because it's extreme. And even if they, they thumb their nose at God, We love them. We love them. Because in essence, the scripture says all of us did that. Even us nice church folk that dress up so nice and come here on Sunday, when we thumbed our nose at him, he demonstrated his love for us. It's a powerful, powerful message. I don't love you because you behave yourself. I love you because of the value placed on you. And the value placed on people no matter how they act, is all the same. The next one, never let the tone get contentious. I love Daniel chapter 2, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. Okay, he's going to put to death Daniel and his friends and all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Our culture loves to encourage and exploit contentiousness. It loves it. Do not engage it. Do not think that you're going to win people over in your Facebook rants. It's not going to happen. There's so much untruth that gets presented. And the way that that Christians react to it is contentious. It's contentious. And it happens even to our good friends like Chick-fil-A. All of the truth doesn't get put out by the media, and we all hop on the bandwagon and start casting stones. If you don't have a relationship with Dan Cathy or a member of that board, don't weigh in on your opinion. Just spend time in prayer ministers who fall or ministers who teach something, if you don't have a relationship with them, don't jump on the bandwagon and cast stones and that one's in, that one's out, this one's a false teacher. Just pray. Just pray. Be slow to speak. Do not let the thing get contentious. Galatians 6.1, if someone is caught in a sin, restore that person gently. And there it is in James one. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I love it. The word, I said I wouldn't give them to you, but I'll give you this one. Hey, I can tell we're both passionate about our beliefs, but I don't want to argue about this. I'd rather have a relationship with you than win an argument. We'll come back to this another time. How about telling me about build a bridge? Don't try to win them in a day. Don't try to convince them in a day. Build a bridge. Lead them to truth by identifying with their struggle. Identifying with their struggle. Show mercy. Do it with caution. Hate the sins. I mean, I know that we, just because you use the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, doesn't mean you're doing it. I'm going to say it again. Just because you're using the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, doesn't mean you're doing it. It's not love on your part. If they're not sensing love from you, maybe it's time to change your verbiage. Maybe it's time to change your method. Because if we're not going to be able to walk in relationship with people and cultivate humility and authenticity with them, we're not going to win them. It's just plain and simple. We can stand up and we can beat our moral drums, but God's intention was never to have a moral drum be beat. The drum, the beat that he wants is be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. The last one that he gives us, paint a picture of what it looks like to come home. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus tells the story about the prodigal son, the lost son. He returned home, and while he was a long way off, his father saw him coming, Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, he embraced him, and he kissed him. My question is, do people in the world know this is God's posture to them right now? That his posture is to come running. And so many people feel like they have to start changing first. They're filled with shame and guilt and hopelessness. And by the way, shame and guilt and hopelessness sometimes comes out in anger. So that person that is being angry at you because of your Christianity, a lot of the times that's just shame. And if you're going to let their venting at you and their behavior and you're going to get on your religious righteous high horse, you're not going to win them. You're not going to win them. Be patient, be persistent, and be willing to play the long game with people. You and I have been called to live as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We've been called to pray consistently. There it is. Do it every single day. Don't miss a day. When you miss a day, start again. Every single day. We have called to authentically and gently begin to engage people in our culture. Lead people to Jesus. Lead them to Jesus first. Know the gospel. Know how to present it. And then trust the leading of the Holy Spirit in every conversation. And don't, for, don't be afraid to pray for people to encounter the love of God, to diffuse one of those tense argumentative moments. And don't think just because there's no outward thing that God isn't working. Over the next several weeks, we're going to talk more in depth about how to live out these principles of hope, peace, love, humility, and wisdom. But I want to invite you to stand with me. And here's how we're going to close today. I'm just going to pray over you. We always like our prayer team to be available in case you're here and you need someone to pray with you or you have questions and you want one of us to answer that. So the prayer team is going to be here in the front for you if you need that. Some of you might feel like you need to spend just a little bit of time in prayer before you step out. I know it's already past 1130. But maybe there's someone that you want to pray for and you just want to start right now and go down through this list and begin to pray for them. Take 60 seconds and pray over them. Pray for God to begin to open their heart. And so after I dismiss, you're going to be free to go. If you want to stick around for a few minutes, you can. Please let this be a place of of prayer. So once we dismiss, if you want to save your visiting together for out in the lobby, and then if people want to stick around in here, they can. And so Father, I thank you for everything that you've done for us. Thank you for the way that you have opened for us to come back into relationship with you. While we were your enemies, you demonstrated your love for us. And you gave yourself for us to be reconciled to you. Help us to live in that reconciled state connected to you so that we can bear fruit in our lives. God, so that we can not just live for ourselves anymore, but we can live for you. Help us. God, help us know how to engage this culture, our loved ones, our family members. God, over these next few weeks, we're going to be surrounded by family members that that are antagonistic toward the gospel. God, that don't understand your love and your power. And I pray, Holy Spirit, help us. Help us right now to begin to lay that spiritual groundwork that needs to be laid so that the God of this age is no longer blinding them. God, so that there's a spirit of adoption that begins to surround their hearts so that when we take opportunities for them to experience and encounter the love of God, that their lives are transformed by it. So Holy Spirit, direct us. I pray for us as Restoration Church. God, that you'd show us how to bring that hope into the lives of every person in this city. I pray that even now all across the city, God, that you would bind the God of this age that is blinding the minds of unbelievers. For the coworkers in this room, God, for those situations that seem utterly hopeless and lost, help us not to just go through the routine and the motions of punching in our time clock, but God, to know that you have placed us where you've placed us. Help us to walk in a spirit of humility and grace. God, help us to humble ourselves before them so they can experience and encounter your love and your power in phenomenal ways. Holy Spirit, break out of your church. This week, everywhere we go, around this city, around this nation, and around the world, bring hope to those who are are without you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go today.